From the studio on the University of Georgia campus, this is Unscripted. I'm your host, Alan Fleury. On each episode of Unscripted, I'll be talking to scholars, artists, journalists, and leaders from all corners of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, as well as guest speakers and lecturers to the UGA campus. My guest today on Unscripted is journalist and best-selling author Paul Tuff, a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, where he has written extensively about education, parenting, poverty, and politics. His journalism has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, GQ, and Esquire, as well as the public radio program This American Life. Tuff is the author of How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character, and most recently, The Years That Matter Most. How College Makes or Breaks Us. Paul Tuff, welcome to Unscripted. Thank you. Great to be here. And I should say welcome back to Unscripted as we spoke a few years earlier when you visited UGA in Athens in support of How Children Succeed. It's great to see you again. Great to be back. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. It reads like an economics and political sociology book embedded in a book about the college years. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, so one of the things that I tried to do with this book was was combine these two kinds of writing that I care about. And one is sort of explanatory writing. And so for that, I, I talked to lots of economists, lots of sociologists, historians, tried to understand how uh, the relationship in the United States between higher education and social mobility has changed over the past few decades and what it is now. But what I care about as a, as a writer and as a reporter is is talking to actual people, uh, especially young people. And so I spent a lot of time talking to students, high school students and college students. And I wanted to, to try to tell this story through their experience, through what it is like to be uh, a student and especially a student from, from modest circumstances at this particular moment in American educational history. And those students are under quite a bit of pressure. Higher education is doing a lot of heavy lifting in the context of our democracy. It is. I mean, it should. I mean, I feel like it's, it's you know, higher education's job really is to provide this opportunity for social mobility, this lift to students who are coming from um, working class backgrounds and low income backgrounds. That, that, you know, for much of the 20th century, that was, especially the late 20th century, that was the role that higher education played. It was the way that you could, you could change your life if you were a, an ambitious uh, young person. And now that has really changed. And so um, there, there's pressure on the institutions, but certainly pressure on the individual students as well. Right. To find the right place, to find the right fit for yourself, and to find this route to career happiness or satisfaction. Meanwhile, there are other factors at play that are not exactly leveling the playing field. Yes, the, the system of higher education is such a complex one. You know, it's, we don't, do not have a centralized system with one one um, overlord controlling it all. And so so there are lots of factors at play. There are, you know, there's the economics of just paying for college. There are the different advantages uh, that different groups get in applying to college, everything from the education you get in K-12 to, um, you know, SAT tutoring, the extracurriculars you do. And, but at every step of the way, what, what I found in my reporting is that uh, more so than in the past, families, children who grow up in families with lots of advantages have um, a really significant leg up when it comes to college applications and admissions, but to college as well. And so so higher education, it, it now plays this role of further dividing people rather than bringing them together as it used to. 
despite our efforts to help those who are at a distinct disadvantage. Yeah, I mean, sometimes those efforts work. So there are there are ways in the system um, that uh, that that playing field gets leveled, but there are so many countervailing pressures that make those uh, small fixes inadequate to the big big inequalities in the system. Do you think everyone in the in the um, in this on, on this field, if we can continue that analogy, wants the same thing? No, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, I, I feel like um, I mean, I feel like we are confused about what we want. And so I, I don't think that we are totally um, honest or self-aware when we talk about what we want out of our higher education system. And that is a lot of I mean, you'll find in the book that that there are these these moments when institutions and individuals sort of say one thing and do another. And that, that was something that, that sort of just kept happening in my reporting. Um, individual institutions, uh, the College Board, U.S. News, all of these different players will talk a lot about equity because I think we all, we all believe in that to, to uh, a large degree. But we've created a system right now in higher education that really feels to, to many people like a zero-sum game mm-hmm. in contrast to the past where, where higher education was thought of as this collective public good. The system has now evolved and we've pushed it in ways that make it feel more like a consumer good, more like a competitive playing field where uh, if my kids benefit, yours lose and vice versa. And once that happens, then all of the talk about equity is undermined by the fact that we feel like we are all competing for scarce resources in a, in a, uh, a market where everyone cannot win. Well, because for, to a great extent, we are doing that. And a lot of it falls back in the language even that we're using here today. Mm-hmm. When we equate value to this more abstract concept of knowledge and mm-hmm. educating ourselves and credentials. Yeah. I mean, there, so one of the things that I think makes, makes thinking and talking and writing about higher education so complicated is that there are at least two things going on at once when students are in college. One is, so if you look at it through the lens of an economist, um, they talk about human capital formation. It's very, um, <clears throat> very romantic idea of, sure. uh, of, of reading great books and, uh, and learning important things. Um, whereas for individual uh, educators and students, what it really feels like is you are figuring yourself and the world out, right? It's this amazing, ideally, it's this amazing time where you are being exposed to new things, gaining independence, learning who you are, learning how the world works. And so the reality is that both these things are going on at the same time. And so um, I, I feel like the the human capital formation is going on even when people are, you know, reading great books and thinking deep thoughts in a knowledge economy. All that stuff matters. And so I, I feel like uh, if we don't pay attention to that side of things, to the way that that um, value is being added in terms of future earnings, we will lose sight of the inequities that exist in that system. The book emphasizes a few disconnects that stood out to me. Mm-hmm. One is uh, the kind of, for lack of a better term, abstract theorizing about education and how we can level the playing field and how we can provide, expand opportunities for people. Mm-hmm. And the sheer gravity that people feel to escape the circumstances they might be in with their family, with their friends and their town. And you, you write a lot about scenarios, anecdotes from rural areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, rural and urban, I mean, read the very first chapter, there's, you know, a young woman right. from the South Bronx mm-hmm. and she is, you know, sh- she believes that going to the university of Pennsylvania, which is her dream school is going to be the thing that is going to change her life. And if she cannot achieve that, she feels like she's going to get trapped in the economic reality that she and her, her single mom and her family have been in 
for ages. But the same thing, you're right, is true with this family, uh, white working class family in the uh, rural area in West North Carolina. Uh, it's that same feeling of uh, we are stuck, and the one thing that could unstick us is a college education. Um, I think, you know, I think there are economic realities behind that, but I think we also sort of mentally, emotionally, psychologically imbue college with this sort of magical thinking that mm-hmm. this is the thing that can that can change an economic reality for a family, for an individual, for a community. But they also might face some uh, resistance from that community itself, and that's something that's hard to describe and almost impossible to quantify. Yeah, it's really hard. And and in fact, that's where there's this real difference, I feel like, between those. I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it, but, sure. but I did notice this real difference between those urban and rural communities. So this young woman, Shannon Torres in the Bronx, um, you know, her community, not a lot of people going to college. No one in her family had ever been to college. Uh, and yet her... Her mom w- was very clear that this was something that she wanted for Shannon, even if she didn't really know how to help, right? Whereas this woman, Kim, uh, the white working class rural woman in Western North Carolina, she similarly had had great ambitions for herself and wanting to escape and change. Um, but her family, also no one having gone to college before her, uh, was really trying to hold her back. They just felt threatened by the idea that she would go off to college. It was a would, a, would be a betrayal of... Uh, the family, the community, the culture. It seems like a, it's a thing that is self-exacerbating and almost impossible to touch from the outside. Yeah. Because whenever these, um, you know, we have these great initiatives that, that uh, private corporations and public-spirited organizations come up with, and they're well-meaning, but when we boil things down to what others simply must do, it seems kind of patronizing and naive. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I feel like the... It's important to give those young people that opportunity, right? So if Kim does want to uh, go through this jarring transition with her family, as she decided she did, she went off to Clemson, uh, not not too far away, a couple hundred miles away right, in right. South Carolina. But that was a big, big change for her and her family. The, the the thing that is frustrating for me about her story is that so she has all this, all these pressures at home, all of these things in her in her community and her family that make it hard for her uh, to 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 go through the sort of change that she wants to get a college degree, to become a scientist, to leave Taylorsville. Um, but then the institutions make it hard as well, right? So for a young person like that who wants to do that, who wants to go through that shift, I feel like the, those are the young people we need to give lots of helping hands to. And and we don't. I don't think we have a great system in place to help someone like her make it out. Mm, no, I, yeah, I agree. And it seems uh, um, they seem difficult to reach as many opportunity, opportunities as we can spell together, put, try to put on the table, because that, that split seems even deeper than uh, or it exacerbates a greater split because, you know, I'm sure you hear about this time from time in some quarters, this question of, is college worth it? Should, you, should, should everyone go to college? Is college meant for everyone? That's, that question seems absurd to me. And yet it's legitimate. Oh, it's totally legitimate. And I feel like that in a way that's sort of three different questions that all get conflated into one thing. Like, yes. like so... And, and and so I spent a lot of time trying to think through that is college worth it uh, question. And so one one uh, group of experts who weigh in on that is economists. And their short answer is yes, that, you know, right now the, the college wage premium, as economists call it, the amount 
um, that you can, on average, increase your earning power by having a BA versus a high school degree is as high as it's ever been in American history. So, absolute, the, all the all the big signs in the economy are, are, are that a college degree is entirely worth it. But there are complications that didn't used to exist in the fact in the past because we have defunded our public higher education to such a degree you can't do what you could do in an earlier generation and pretty cheaply experiment with college saying, mm-hmm. well, you know, I'm not quite sure, but I'll take a couple of years of community college and see if it works. And sometimes it would. And then you go on and get a degree. And that kind of investment was not really expensive because it wasn't very expensive to go to college. Now it is because, you know, because we don't publicly fund public edu- higher education the way we used to. Doing a couple of years of of, uh, public college can be really expensive and put you into a lot of debt. And if you're not sure about what you're doing and you drop out, you can end up now really um, suffering financially as well as in every other way because of uh, trying a college degree and not finishing it. And the thing that you really need to do if you're going to go to college at all is go there without a mind about what you're going to do. Because it should be a time of discovery. Right. Yeah, it seems impossible. Right. And so we, we put all of this pressure now because of the way that the economy and the educational system has changed. We've put all this pressure on, you know, 18 and 19 year olds uh, who are not constitutionally <laughs> um, uh, built to take that kind of pressure. Right. That is not what college is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be uh, something where there is enormous financial and economic pressure on you, where you need to make all the right decisions all the right time or you're going to be uh, ruined. And if you get everything right, you're going to you know have this fun- tremendous advantage. The fact that there's so much pressure on those years, I think, is part of why young people are so stressed out right now. Unscripted is a production of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, the oldest, largest, and most academically diverse college at the University of Georgia. More than 650 faculty members provide instruction in every classical discipline and all branches of empirical inquiry. Critical thinking skills, from languages and literature to biological sciences, build the foundation for every profession as they empower students to be informed, engaged citizens. For more on the Franklin College, visit franklin.uga.edu. Welcome back to Unscripted. On this episode, we're speaking with New York Times bestselling author Paul Tuff about his new book, The Years That Matter Most. The book delivers fresh insight on how the American system of colleges and universities helps and hinders young people, especially low-income and first-generation students. Do you think that taking the financial aspect, that that pressure out of this is going to, first of all, is it possible? And then what would that do to the dynamic itself? I think it would return it to, well, it would do, it would do two things. First, okay, let me start with your first question. Is it possible? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the big shift that has to happen is, uh, for the public to, 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 uh, finance higher education, public higher education, rather than individual students. And that is like, that's why we built our public higher education system. That's what we did in the past. And that's what every other country, uh, does you, when the public funds higher education, the way that the United States used to, there is just less pressure on those students because they have the ability, if they want, if they know exactly what they want, they want to go right through and get a degree, that's straightforward, but it also is lower risk if you want to spend a couple of years trying this major, trying that major, uh, and figuring out exactly what you want. So if we if we change that, if, if we can lower that pressure, will things change for students? Absolutely. Um, and I think that is the system that we had uh, a generation or two ago where mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a good state uh, higher education system had lots of different options. There are, there's, a, you know, ideally there's a network of community college 
uh, everything from a community college to a flagship public institution with various regional public options uh, along the way. When students see that there are lots of paths to a potential goal, um, it it makes it easier. It obviously makes it easier for them to achieve that, but it also just takes the pressure and the stress off them. Right. And it's really a question of us deciding as a polity that this is in our interest to preserve and perpetuate social cohesion. We need to make this decision. This is important for the country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, to me, like those two things go together, uh, cohesion and opportunity, right? right. That when, when um, opportunity through higher education is widely distributed, it creates a sense of social cohesion because it, cre- it, it creates a sense of fairness and a, and a, and a sense of, of cooperation rather than competition. So that this sense of like my kids are competing against your kids and only one can emerge victorious, you know, that undermines my relationship with you as, sure. as a fellow citizen, right? If, if we're in competition for opportunity. Um, and again, it's not, it's like a, a system so I'm from Canada, right? And so the, the, when I when I go up there uh, to visit, it, it, it is just so striking the way that the higher education system there functions differently. It is much much sort of flatter. There are lots of um, very good colleges. There are not the sort of extremes of highs and lows that there are in the United States. And as a result, there's just much less pressure about college and university. It's just something you do most mostly after high school. Um, there's not not the huge expense, not the huge pressure. And as a result, you have a, a both a a more educated uh, population, but also a more evenly educated population, not a sort of winner-take-all system the way we have here. Right, and we understand the dynamic, the the um, the data, and the all, all the information much better than we ever did. We have a lot of fascinating statistics and a lot of uh, um, interviews with economists in the book that support these ideas. And generally, a lot of times they get uh, they get uh, they trail off into more bureaucratic fixes. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, um, yeah, I, I feel like I feel like economists have really painted this portrait now of the inequities in higher education that we didn't know uh, even a few years ago. This the main one for me is this study by uh, Raj Chetty, the right. economist who, when I was reporting on him, was at Stanford. Now he's at Harvard, uh, and, a, and a number of colleagues. This thing called the Mobility Report Cards uh, Project that looked at by looking at tax records that going back generations looked at the relationship between higher education and social mobility, how American families rise and fall in the economy and how that connects to the educational opportunities they take. And so we now have this picture of how that works, uh, both how both the, the, the effect that uh, a college education has on um, mobility, but also the inequities. I mean, so he, he was the one who was able to show how at individual institutions, um, how the student bodies were made up. And so he found, for instance, that at, at the Ivy League colleges, you know, two thirds to three quarters of the student body uh, were people who had grown up in families, students who had grown up in families in the top uh, income quintile, and only two or three percent were from the bottom income quintile. And so, I think people had known that it wasn't a total level playing field in those institutions. But I think the depth of that inequity hadn't become clear until uh, economists like him uh, were able to paint that portrait. Um, but you're right. I think I think we are conflicted right now about whether the solution is those sort of bureaucratic fixes. Let's try this. Um, you know, this intervention, this uh, mailing out these packets, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. watching this video, uh, or whether there is, wh- whether the data pushes us towards a bigger kind of fix. Because his analysis really brought into the clear whether the, the question is, is that the problem of the student 
Or is that the problem of the university? Yeah, and I think I think we I think policy people and economists have been really divided when we see these inequities. And I, I, do, I do think that there is um, on the part of institutions and on the part of you know, people who do have degrees, there is a desire to think of this as um, as a problem of the students, right? The students are making bad decisions. They're doing something wrong. It's their fault. Uh, and, and the way we can fix it is by tweaking them in some way, right? Giving them more information or more uh, push in some direction or another. That doesn't work if the problem is us, right? If the problem yeah. is the system, the institutions, uh, and and the way that the public supports it. And so um, I, I feel like the field is divided right now in terms of which kind of solution is necessary. That's what I, one insight I thought was really important, that there was an assumption that there are all of these high-achieving poor kids that just aren't applying to colleges, which yeah. isn't the case. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it is the case in some ways that there is this way that, you know, students like this uh, young woman, Kim, uh, this very good student from a, a white working class community in North Carolina, it is true that they're not, they're, they are tending to make decisions uh, not to apply to really selective colleges. I just feel like we haven't yet figured out exactly why that is. And I think we, the assumption, you know, economists like information, right? Their, their basic idea is when, uh, consumers have the right kind of information, uh, you get a totally efficient system, right? Uh, and uh, higher education is not an efficient system. No, it isn't. Uh, the, the process of deciding where you want to go to college is not an efficient process. And so uh, information did not change that. The reason that those um, those students, I think, are making that decision has a lot to do with money. They, mm -hmm. they genuinely uh, feel, and I think they're right, that going to the kind of colleges they would like to go to is going to be super expensive for them and their families. Uh, but I think there's also all of these complications of uh, family and history and culture um, that economics has a hard time measuring and dealing with. Well, you, you pointed up the reality that as opposed to the past when students, the high-achieving students were kind of regionally uh, dispersed around the country. Mm -hmm. Now they're all clustering at the best schools. Yeah, and that's, that is that is a big change that I feel like we we have not come to terms with, right? Yeah. That, and, and this goes back decades that there was this era where mostly students, especially including high-performing students, would make their decisions based on geography. If you're um, you know, if you're a student at a at a uh, a great student at a in a small town in Georgia, you would go to a Georgia uh, public institution. Uh, and now those students feel the the pressure and the opportunity to go to the most selective institution that can admit them. And so that has changed things for those students, but it's also changed things for the system because it has led again to the sort of winner take all. Um, uh, situation where certain institutions now have only are, are are admitting students with very high test scores, and those tend to be students with very high incomes. And so, yeah, there's both a clustering in terms of uh, test scores, but also a clustering in terms of income. So, as a journalist, it's not your job to win friends. How is all this news going over? Um, <laughs> like, how how are students taking this in? First of all, when you speak with them, if you ever do to groups yeah. or parents, I mean, I think students, I think students. Um, appreciate seeing the uh, the big picture because when you are when you are a high school student applying or a college student um, arriving in college you, you everything about the way that we give information to students is 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 very narrow right we just encourage them to think about themselves sort of in a vacuum uh, like here are your ambitions your uh, what where you should be applying what your test scores are um, and that, that I think that puts a lot of pressure on students it can be a little exhausting and what I hope the book does for those students is lets them see a bigger picture how their own um, ambitions and obstacles 
uh, exist in the context of these bigger systems. And so um, I don't know if it's succeeding at this, but my, my hope is that uh, in giving them that bigger context, it takes some of the individual pressure off them. I hope so, too. Um, well, and how about the response from universities and the more institutional members of this scenario? Yeah, it's been mixed. So, I mean, I think universities are definitely interested. They, like, they, they feel like some universities, I think, feel like there is a benefit to me um, uh, sort of removing some of the smokescreen that's around the way these systems work. So the main place that I saw that was um, uh, in admission. So I wrote this um, one chapter that then became uh, was excerpted in The New York Times magazine about admissions, specifically at, at this uh, institution, Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, and, it, you know, I think admissions people exist in this universe where they have this cognitive dissonance because they're the way they and everyone around them talks about uh, admissions is that it's all about merit, right? That they are just looking for the best students and there are debates about how you measure who the best students are, uh, but that that is their real mission and their real goal. When you talk to admissions people candidly, they they say this is a, you know private institutions like Trinity that their real job is to raise money, right? That that these institutions are in often f- difficult financial situations. Trinity is losing eight million dollars a year, um, and the university is dependent on tuition income from students in order to uh, survive. And so mm-hmm. they are, they are looking for customers, right? Um, paying customers, and that affects who they can admit. And and that makes sense in a certain way, but they, they it's hard to talk about it that way because the public has this idea that that you know they have nothing but limitless resources and they are just trying to decide who are the best <laughs> students to admit. And so, I I think there are institutions that are anxious about me um, sort of revealing that that inside story. But I think there are also people within the system who feel like, thank goodness, right? Like, thank goodness we can be honest really about what's happening because we can't really change things. We can't improve things until we face up to that fact. Because so many people involved in this question are public spirited. They want the best thing for the country. It might be different from our assumptions, the way we thought about it. It, sa- it seems as though it's it's uh, um, it's presenting perhaps a, a dichotomy between private and public institutions. Mm-hmm. But it makes me wonder whether... You know, our top performing public institutions, are they just the site of the next arms race? Yeah, they are. I mean, you know, so public institutions have really changed as we have um, the public has has stopped committing the same kind of resources that we used to. uh, Flagship public institutions have been acting much more like private institutions because, you know, for obvious reasons, right? If, If the public is only paying a small percentage of uh, the costs of a flag- flagship institution, they have to behave like a private institution. We say that we aspire to them. You know, our, our peer and aspiration. Oh, right, that we want to be like a private institution. Yes, right. Yeah, we're very explicit about that. Right, right. But that means private institution style um, admissions, which means admitting a lot of rich kids, uh, admitting students from out of state, uh, focusing on test scores beyond everything else. And, you know, we have institutions that do that. Do that. To my mind, like what the the the, the purpose of public institutions, uh, including flagships, should be to to serve the state, right? And serving the state means uh, providing an excellent, low cost um, education that's focused on students in that state. It's a struggle, but it's uh, eliminated one that's eliminated by this great book, Paul. Thanks so much. It's great to see you again. Thank you. Um, good luck with the book. It's really important, and I really enjoyed reading it. Good. Thanks so much. <laughs>